Yes, you heard right, my friends. You heard right. What you just heard was from the Gay Pride March in New York City over this past weekend with a bunch of freaks, people with more genetic defects than a Hudson River trout, clamoring, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. And then there's some half-baked song that follows in some of these video uploads that are using this clip of this chant, singing the San Francisco Gays Choir, how they're going to convert your children to be gay, and they're going to learn all things online that you kept from them. Uh, I think that a segment of the population threatening parents, trying to intimidate them, telling them that they're planning on coming for their most precious possession, their children, and woo them away from the values that the family has every right to raise the child with and try to convert them forcibly or by duplicitous action uh, into another lifestyle and abandon their family, I think is about as sinister as it gets. And I'd like to know why. I'd like someone in the federal government to answer why. Parents protesting at school boards because of the filth that's being foisted down the throats of the children and the parents from the school system is something that the FBI feels they need to monitor as potential domestic terrorism and white supremacy. But these freaks that are walking up and down the street claiming how they're here, they're queer, we're coming for your children, that's not a terrorist threat? That's not a terroristic threat? These people are backward. These people are upside down. These people are sick. Most of them have mental disorders, and they're certainly most of them suffering from a body dysmorphic disorder, especially when it comes to these trans people. And I've explained this in the past. Look, there may be a handful of people who really have some type of gender displacement uh, diagnosis or phobia or something, or maybe in a woman, I'm in a man's body, but the bottom line is that according to the foremost psychiatrist who was the head of psychiatry at John Hopkins University, as I've said many times on this show, a man that they try to discredit because they disagree with what he says, but he was the head of psychiatry for over 20 or 25 years. And John Hopkins was the first institution to perform sex change operations. They don't do it anymore. Because it doesn't work. It's beyond the realm of medical science to turn a man into a woman or a woman into a man. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of three easy ways. You can go to the Google Play Store, the iTunes App Store, and download the free Podbean app, and then subscribe that way. Look up the Jamie Dury Show and click subscribe. Or you can use your native podcast aggregator app and either subscribe through the Google Podcast Play Store or the iTunes App Store. Either way, you'll be able to leave comments and reviews, and we desperately need more of both. The more we can get of a positive nature, a five-star nature, the faster the show will grow because the more will be found in searches when people are going on to the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store looking for conservative commentary and comment uh, and analysis 
uh, the greater likelihood that our show will come up. So it'll just metastasize and we will we will grow. And the more we grow, the more we're able to do for you. So please give us a five-star review and please share the show with your friends. Tell them about us and encourage them to listen and give us a review as well. So I wanted to start out with this today because it was Gay Pride Month and it's Gay Pride Weekend in New York, and it's always a sideshow. I had a friend of mine who was caught in traffic recently down on Bleecker Street this weekend during this Gay Pride fiasco, and they were more like a, a mob. There were people there that were clearly anarchists taking advantage of being part of this sort of thing, and that's the case with most of these movements in this country, Black Lives Matter, Antifa. The original sentiment may be nice and credible and uh, pretty innocuous, but these causes, because of the momentum that they generate, are quickly hijacked by communist forces and extremist forces and are used to foist a different agenda on the public. It's interesting to note that Black Lives Matter, uh, the organization had as one of its chief financial operatives and fundraisers, a woman who was part of the Weather Underground, white as the driven snow, not black at all. She was an unnamed co-conspirator, an un, unjar, not unnamed, but uncharged co-conspirator in the Brinks robbery in Rockland County that resulted in the deaths of a police sergeant, a police officer, and, and a security guard in Rockland County back in the early 1980s. Um, <clears throat> these are not nice people. These are dangerous people. And whether they're affiliated with Marxist or communist organizations and being used as fronts or not, a group of, of mentally challenged, uh, mentally defective lunatics who are not even sure what they are, running up and down the street chanting, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children, has to be as disconcerting a piece of news any parent could hear. And any parent would have a right to fear for their child. I got news for you. Some person shouts to me, I'm here, I'm queer, I'm coming for your children. That's probably the last words they're ever going to utter. They're not getting my child. So just something to consider, something to write your local congressman or your councilwoman or your councilman or your, your, your uh, alderman, if they're still called that as they are in Chicago, your mayor, your county legislature, your senator, why is it that parents can be listed on an FBI list because they want to challenge the nature of the education their children are receiving in this leftist-dominated professional education system we have in this country, thanks to the likes of Randy Weingarten and the United Federation of Teachers, a woman who's probably one of the most dangerous people in America. But freaks like this can say these things with impunity, and we're supposed to just accept it. No, we don't have to accept it. But this is the nature of the left, and it's always been. There's a lot going on today, a lot going on that I wanted to cover. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about, I spoke on the show last week about uh, the tragedy of the Titan submersible, uh, but apparently Barack Obama thinks that the coverage of the Titan submersible was hypocrisy. Um, he slammed the hypocrisy over the interest in the Titanic sub-disaster uh, compared to the lack, as he calls it, of coverage of a migrant boat tragedy. Um, now, this migrant boat tragedy, if I'm not mistaken, was a capsizing or something or a sinking of a boat that killed uh, 
50 some odd people or something like that. But it was in Greece. It wasn't in the United States. So you'd expect a different level of coverage here in the U.S. for something that happened off our eastern coast at one of the most famous shipwrecks of all time rather than something that happened uh, in the European continent. But hell, I'm not going to put words in the man's mouth. Why don't we just listen to a short clip here of the former president of the United States and uh, let him speak for himself, and then we'll analyze it. There's, there's a, a potential tragedy unfolding with a submarine that is getting, you know, minute-to-minute coverage all around the world. And it's understandable because obviously we all want and pray that those folks are rescued. But the fact that that's gotten so much more attention than 700 people who sank is that's not okay. Well, he doesn't mention it uh, in the clip, but if you look in some of the comments here, it's apparently. He's talking about uh, the news media turning a blind eye to the deaths of 700 migrants when a fishing boat sang off, uh, sank, sorry, sang off the coast of Greece. Well, as I just finished saying, the coast of Greece uh, is far away from the United States. The Titanic is an iconic vessel. Many lives perished when the, when the Titanic sank, uh, Mr. Obama, far more than the 700 lives that were lost in this Greek uh, tragedy. Now, no one's discounting the fact that the 700 lives that were lost in Greece were tragic, but when you have a submersible submarine that is sinking to depths that we never thought possible before, going there to try and explore the wreck of one of the most famous ships in the history of the world that sunk on its maiden voyage with over 1,500 or 1,200 lives lost. And now five people lose their lives in an attempt to see this wreck. It makes for the sort of thing that is newsworthy that people want to see. And not every piece of news can be reported. And the fact that it's receiving disproportionate treatment uh, is not indicative of racism or a lack of compassion or anything of the sort. It's just like when you folks all come out and try and say, everyone is equal under the law, the law applies to everyone. No, it doesn't. The law doesn't apply to everyone. It certainly didn't apply to you. We have President Donald Trump. Let's put aside this document thing for a second. Let's go back to this nonsense that Alvin Bragg is trying to put together in Manhattan. You have the first president of the United States, a former president, to ever face a criminal indictment. And the problem that a lot of people are having is they're trying to understand how a misclassification of a financial transaction, in this case the money allegedly paid to Stormy Daniels and listed as legal expenses, um, somehow becomes a state case when it's supposed to be something that was in violation, 
according to the, the left, of federal elections law. Well, federal elections law are federal matter. It doesn't wind up in state court just because you feel like bringing it there. And we have had these type of things. But it rarely happens. And when it does happen, no one is ever charged criminally. They simply have to pay a fine. Uh, And that's exactly what happened back in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. And it's what happened back in 2012 with Barack Obama. In 2012, I'm reading from an article right here in the Times. In 2012, Obama's campaign agreed to pay $375,000, one of the most substantial fines in uh, federal election um, uh, commission history. In the 2008 election cycle, that's when this case was uh, first began. It was a it, it grew out of the 2008 election cycle, and it worked its way through the FEC for four years before Obama finally agreed to pay when they came to a settlement. It centered on record keeping, the same type of thing they're trying to go after Trump for. And the fact that his campaign accepted $1.4 million in contributions that exceeded federal limits. Now, supposedly an excessive contribution claim is also playing a role in the case against Donald Trump. And the article goes on to state that this striking underlying similarity between the Clinton and the Trump cases both involve allegations that campaign-related expenses were improperly recorded as payments for lawyers' services. Well, if anything, I would say that Trump's got a better argument there than Clinton did, because if you want to believe what the prosecution is saying, they're saying that um, uh, Michael Cohen made these payments to to, uh, Miss Stormy Daniels. And Cohen at the time was in the employ of President Trump, or Mr. Trump then, as uh, a lawyer. So if the lawyer was making the payments and the Trump campaign carried payments to the lawyer as legal expenses because he was retained as a legal person, uh, I don't know that that's so far afield of the norm and is anything that would warrant a criminal case. Uh, but there's you have this commonality in both these cases, both involving allegations that campaign-related expenses improperly recorded as payments for lawyer services. And you want to figure out the difference? I guess it depends which uh, expert you ask. Um, but they're trying to say that um, Bradley Smith, who was interviewed, the former chairman of the FEC, said that you have uh, prosecutorial discretion. Prosecutors have near absolute power to decide whether to pursue charges. Uh, that's true. And they always seem to decide to pursue charges against Republicans and never against Democrats. In 2022, the FEC found probable cause to believe that the Clinton campaign violated federal election laws by misreporting the purpose of the payments made via a Clinton-retained law firm records show. Now, 2022, 2016, six years, more than $1 million was paid to a strategic intelligence firm, Fusion GPS, during Clinton's unsuccessful 2016 campaign. But campaign records classified the Fusion GPS payments as fees for attorney's work, not opposition research. That research project produced a major effect. Fusion GPS's connection to the former British spy Christopher Steele 
produced a dossier that helped touch off a two-year federal probe of Trump, who dubbed it the Russia hoax. Now, why is it that we have this disparate treatment under the law? Why is it that the Clinton campaign is not getting hauled down the carpet or Mrs. Clinton isn't being indicted? Why is it that Barack Obama only paid a fine and Donald Trump is being charged criminally? Well, could it be that the Durham report, which everyone is trying to poo-poo, sheds a great deal of light on all of this? And there's a great article, an analytical article here in the Epic Times, talking about how much did Brennan, piece of garbage Marxist that he is, communist, how much did Brennan, Obama, and Comey actually know before the FBI opened its investigation into Trump? And we're talking about the investigation uh, that investigated Trump to see if he was a Russian asset that the Congress of the United States decided, and the Attorney General decided to spend two years with a special counsel investigating this, spending $30 million in taxpayer money to find out there was nothing there. Two impeachments to find out there's nothing there. The article is really, really well done. It starts off, I may skip around here, but I want to give you some real meat Few other officials in government had such a large hand in establishing and promoting the Russia collusion hoax, as did former CIA director John Brennan. Brennan admitted during congressional testimony that he, quote, made sure that anything involving the individuals involved in the Trump campaign was shared with the FBI. And by his own admission, Brennan even used incidental collection of U.S. citizens Uh, in the process, telling Rachel Maddow, of all people, that, quote, any time we would incidentally collect information on a U.S. person, we would hand that over to the FBI. So you're going to start paper trails on Americans and not even be sure whether or not they were involved simply because their name came up? With the release of the report by special counsel John Durham, we now know that Brennan knew back in July of 2016. This is even before the election, ladies and gentlemen. This is before the election was even close to being over. They haven't even had the debates yet. Brennan knew back in July of 16, even before the FBI's crossfire hurricane case into the Trump campaign was opened, that the entire Russian collusion narrative was a hoax. Brennan knew it. Dorham's report discusses the government's handling of certain intelligence that it received during the summer of 2016 concerning, quote, the approval by Hillary Clinton on July 26, 2016, of a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump by tying him to Russia. Now, that foreign policy advisor is almost certainly the current national security advisor for President, I don't know, I'm the President Joe Biden, security advisor Jake Sullivan. At the time, he was the senior foreign policy advisor for the Clinton campaign. Now, the plan 
was that they were going to try and smear Trump as colluding with Russia in an attempt to win the 2016 election. It was Brennan who would have been one of the most prominent people in promoting this lie. In January 2017, they released an intelligence community assessment, which Brennan created, and this became a cornerstone in the narrative that Trump had colluded with Russia to win the election. The article goes on to say that Brennan's actions against Trump, however, began long before his creation, creation of the intelligence community assessment. In late July 2016, Brennan received the intelligence that Clinton had, quote, approved a campaign plan to vilify Trump by tying him to Putin and the Russians hacking of the Democratic National Committee. Now, what is often overlooked is that Brennan received intelligence noting Clinton's approval of the plan. This detail is important because the actual plan was likely hatched months before in early 2016. We know this because in October of 2016, WikiLeaks released an email exchange between the Clinton Communications Director Jennifer Palmieri and Democratic strategist Joel Johnson. This was a late February 2016 exchange in which it was revealed the early existence of a Clinton smear campaign aimed at Trump. Now, at the time, the email was pretty much ignored, but in light of Durham's new report, it has now gained new significance. By mid-April of 2016, it had become increasingly clear that Trump would be Clinton's opponent in the general election. Having failed to stop Donald Trump in every primary, everyone now knew that Trump was going to be the opponent. So that may be the main reason why they were not going forward with it, holding it in reserve, because they were hoping that they wouldn't have to and that Trump would get knocked off in the primaries, but that didn't happen. Now, in April of 2016, when it was clear after all of the success that Trump was having in the primaries that he would be the nominee, that primary success seemed to coincide with a decision that was made in late April in the Clinton campaign to hire Fusion GPS. Now, this firm uh, was a firm of political operatives run by a former Wall Street Journal staffer by the name of Glenn Simpson. On May 3rd, 2016, Trump won the Indiana primary and became the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party. According to earlier court filings by Durham, the day after, the very next day, after Trump became the presumptive nominee, a cyber group working through former Perkins Coey and Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman began compiling and curating data that would later be used to create the false appearance of a link between the Trump organization and the Russian Alpha Bank. Now, there was no link between the Trump organization and the Russian Alpha Bank, but they used that false link to try and push the narrative that Trump somehow had ties to the Kremlin. In the meantime, during this time, Brennan is busy at work trying to collect information 
on the Trump campaign and trying to shove it over to the FBI, because remember, Brennan is CIA. He can't do anything in the United States. Brennan told Chuck Todd during a February 4th, 2018 interview on Meet the Depressed, we, the CIA and the intelligence community, had collected a fair amount of information in the summer of 2016 about what the Russians were doing on multiple fronts, and we wanted to make sure that the FBI had full access to that. Notably, it was Brennan himself who acknowledged during his May 2017 congressional testimony that his intelligence served as the basis for the FBI counterintelligence investigation, stating that he was aware of intelligence and information about contacts between Russian officials and U.S. persons, and that it served as the basis for the FBI investigation. But we now know that that was a hoax. And not only do we know it was a hoax, we know that Brennan knew it was a hoax. So as recently as February 4th of 2018, almost two years after Brennan first learned of the Clinton um, plan to discredit Donald Trump by calling him a Russian asset, we have Brennan, former CIA director under Obama, continuing to lie on national TV, trying to portray this as some legitimate source of information, when it was anything but. It was opposition research, and he actively used his position as the director of central intelligence to promote this garbage and undermine an election by trying to undermine people's confidence in one of the principal candidates by calling him a Russian spy. Now, don't tell me that's not criminal. They find all these bogus charges they can dig up against Donald Trump. They can't find anything against this piece of crap communist, because that's what Brennan is. It's exactly what it is. July 31st, 2016, the FBI's Crossfire Hurricane investigation formally opened. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn had joined the Trump campaign in late February 2016 as an informal advisor on foreign, foreign policy matters. Was interviewed July 18, 2016 at the Republican National Convention by Yahoo News reporter Michael Isakoff, who immediately attacked Flynn for a dinner he had attended in Moscow on December 10, 2015, thereby planting the initial seeds of the Russian collusion narrative. Isakoff would later meet with dossier officer, uh, author Christopher Steele. The resulting September 23, 2016 article from Isakoff's meeting with Steele was then cited by the FBI as validating Steele's claims in a play of circular reporting and was later featured in the original FISA application and the three, page, three subsequent renewals on Trump campaign foreign uh, policy advisor Carter Page. This whole thing was orchestrated and planned, and the media were willing participants on this. People got Pulitzer Prizes for their work into this non-factual story. Are you kidding me? These things should be given back. But yet the indictments continue to roll against Donald Trump. But nothing against Obama, nothing against the Clintons. And make no mistake, all of these attempts to try and protect Joe Biden, nobody gives a, a, a hoot in hell about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a 49-year career politician who's living well above his means because he's been a thief his entire life. 
and he's been stealing. He's been stealing as a congressman. He was a thief as a senator, and he was this thief and vice president. The only problem is the president at the time was the left's darling boy, Barack Hussein Obama. And they don't ever want to have anything negative said about Barack Obama or even inferred about Barack Obama. So they have to try and deflect and protect Joe Biden and uh, attempt to, to portray him as innocent and all this stuff is right-wing propaganda because they can't possibly let Biden take a fall because if he does, if Biden is proven to have done all these things and the evidence is mounting by the day, mounting by the day, especially with new revelations that there was a special cell phone that the Bidens were paying $300 a month for, a global phone, this because of information released by reporter Peter Schweitzer, a global phone where you can call all over the world, something that wasn't uh, subject to his security protocols as vice president. It wasn't a government phone. It's much like the Clinton Blackberry that she could use whenever she wanted to do stuff. Um, we now know that he was wheeling and dealing. And there was no way, there's just simply no way, that all of this could have been done by Vice President Biden without Barack Obama knowing about it. And if Barack Obama didn't know about it, and all this was being done by his vice president right under his nose, then Barack Obama is an incompetent fool, and nobody should be listening to him. Anyway, you cut it. It doesn't reflect well on the Democrats. It doesn't reflect well on Joe Biden. It doesn't reflect well on Barack Obama or the Clintons. It shows that they're all thieves. And even if Obama didn't profit one dime personally, if he allowed this to go on, knowing that it was happening, he's just as corrupt. Just as corrupt as Biden. And when Biden made that threat in Ukraine, saying you're not going to get your billion dollars if the prosecutor isn't fired, and he says, you can't withhold that money, said Zelensky. You're not the president. I said, call him. So the fact that Biden had enough confidence to say, call him, it means that Obama had to know what Biden was doing, or Biden would never make that threat. He couldn't risk Zelensky calling Barack Obama and saying, Mr. President, why are you threatening to withhold the billion dollars in aid if I don't fire the prosecutor that's looking into Burisma and, and uh, Vice President Biden's son? Obama would be like, what the hell are you talking about? Because that's what would have happened if he called Obama and Obama didn't know about it. So Biden can only make that statement with confidence because Obama knew exactly what was going on. He had to know what was going on. Now, going back to the report. Durham report notes that Brennan briefed then-President Barack Obama, then-Vice President Joe Biden, and FBI Director James Comey about Clinton's master plan on the 3rd of August, 2016, within days of receiving the Clinton plan intelligence. Remember, uh, he knew about the approval back in late July, and this is August 3rd now. He's briefing all of these big wigs in government. The Durham report further states that according to Brennan's handwritten notes and his recollections from the meeting, he briefed on relevant intelligence known to date on Russian election interference, including the Clinton plan intelligence. Supposedly, this date is the first time 
Brennan informed anyone else of Clinton's plan, a date that is conveniently after the FBI had already opened their crossfire hurricane investigation. And here is where things, according to the article, get, quote, really interesting. Durham doesn't provide the exact date that Brennan received the Clinton plan, but he does note that the intelligence community received the Clinton plan intelligence in late July of 2016, before the FBI opened their crossfire hurricane investigation. Durham also states that the official who initially received the information immediately recognized its importance, including its relevance, to the U.S. presidential election and acted quickly to make CIA leadership aware of it. Very funny how they waited until the CIA could send this information over to the FBI so that the FBI could open their crossfire hurricane investigation before Brennan goes and briefs Obama and Comey. Of course, Comey already probably knew. But before they briefed Obama to make Obama look uh, like, well, I've got two agencies of government going over this stuff, giving him plausible deniability. Durham also states, it seems clear from this information alone that Brennan had the information before the FBI opened its investigation on the 31st of July. And much deeper in the Durham report, almost at the end it says, Mm -hmm. Durham states that FBI leadership disregarded the Clinton plan intelligence, which it received at almost the exact same time as the Australian Paragraph 5 information. This data point is extremely important. The Paragraph 5 information is the information the FBI received relating to Australian diplomat Alexander Downer's conversation with Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos and was used as the basis or predicate for opening Crossfire Hurricane. This is important. This is crucial. Because we know from both the Durham report and the Mueller report that the Paragraph 5 information was received by FBI headquarters on July 28th after an FBI legal attache sent an electronic communication containing the information to the assistant special agent in charge at the Philadelphia field office. Furthermore, Durham notes that at precisely the same time as the Clinton plan intelligence was received, the Clinton campaign made public statements tying the DNC computer hack to Russian attempts to help Trump get elected. The FBI was receiving the Clinton campaign-funded steel reports and the Clinton campaign-funded Alpha Bank allegations were being prepared for delivery to the media and the FBI. Notably, each of these events preceded the opening of Crossfire Hurricane on July 31st, 2016. Now, why is all of this important? The timeline is what's crucial here, ladies and gentlemen. Because Brennan told Durham... That he didn't receive the Clinton plan intelligence until after the FBI opened its investigation, which was a lie. But Brennan's claims don't make any sense in light of the timeline and the evidence that we just spoke about here. Every data point we have strongly indicates that Brennan had the Clinton plan information in the days leading up 
to the FBI's opening of the Crossfire Hurricane operation, not after opening it up. Brennan's claims also do not pass the reasonability test in light of his actions after July 27th, the date that the evidence we presented strongly indicates he received the Clinton plan intelligence. Why? Because according to Durham's report on July 28th, Brennan met with Obama and other White House personnel. It was during this meeting that Brennan and Obama discussed intelligence relevant to the 2016 presidential election cycle, as well as the potential creation of an interagency fusion cell to synthesize and analyze intelligence about Russian attempts to influence the election. The very next day, on the morning of July 29th, Brennan met with Comey to brief him on his July 28th meeting with the president. All of this stuff making to look like it's real when it's fake. This, I tell you, this work being done by the Epic Times, this analysis is unbelievably well put together. Unbelievably well put together. Let me get back to where we were in the article. Durham notes that email traffic and witness interviews conducted by the office reflected at least some CIA personnel believed that the Clinton plan intelligence led to the decision being made to set up the fusion cell. Hmm, interesting. Durham also notes that immediately after communicating with, pre- with the president, it would be Obama, Comey, and the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, to discuss relevant information, Brennan and other agency officials took steps to ensure that dissemination of intelligence, including the Clinton plan intelligence, would be limited. There's another data point that also falls into this sequence. The Clinton-funded Alpha Bank allegations mentioned above. The day after Brennan briefed Obama, a meeting took place at Perkins Coie on July 29th, 2016. At this meeting, Michael Sussman and fellow Perkins attorney Mark Elias met with Fusion GPS principals, including Simpson and Steele. According to Durham's earlier indictment of Sussman, the timing of this meeting at, the per- at Perkins coincides with the completion of Sussman's curation of the data behind the Clinton campaign-funded Alpha Bank operations. I'm telling you, you read this Durham report, look, he may not have, have done a great job uh, prosecuting these people. I think the deck is stacked against him. But man, he put together a timeline of events that the simple reading of it by any honest person... Uh, has to reveal that this stuff was as corrupt as the day is long. It just was. And there's just no getting around it. So here is the summary of all of this. The sequence of events laid out very well in this article is as follows. On July 26th, 2016, Hillary Clinton approved a pre-existing plan to vilify Donald Trump by claiming he was compromised by Russia. The next day, July 27th, Steele suddenly produced a new memo that falsely made the same claims outlined in Clinton's plan. That same day, July 27th, CIA Director Brennan gained knowledge of Clinton's plan. He likely briefed Obama on the Clinton plan early on July 28th, although he denies this, and then immediately began creating 
the interagency fusion cell, which, according to CIA members of the fusion cell, was actually created because of the Clinton plan information. Brennan then briefed FBI Director James Comey the next day. That would have been the 29th. Concurrently, Fusion's GPS's Simpson and Steele were working with Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman to release the Alpha Bank allegations. All of these events transpired before the FBI opened its crossfire hurricane investigation into the Trump campaign on July 31st. Now, I have to remind you in case you forget that while all this was going on, Hillary Clinton wasn't simply a presidential candidate. She was a sitting cabinet member of the current administration. She was the Secretary of State, a very powerful position in the Obama administration. And through her connections with other cabinet members, FBI Director Comey and CIA Director Brennan and the president himself, they weaponized the government against Donald Trump. And then after, after losing the election, which they never could have envisioned, although the rest of us thought she would lose, but... She never believed it. She believed her own polls that were coming in saying it was going to be a landslide. After she lost, it was the Democrats and the Clintons trying to continue to push this Russian collusion hoax to challenge the results of a legitimate election. And that election, ladies and gentlemen, was about as legitimate as an election that we've had in recent years, because Donald Trump was not in the government at the time. Donald Trump had no way of manipulating things the way they did. He had to do it with hard work. He outworked every other Republican um, candidate. He mowed down a field of 16 career politicians. He then challenged another politician and simply outworked her on the campaign trail. We still don't know the depths of Hillary Clinton's illness, but she wasn't able to campaign. And when she did have a rally, there was no enthusiasm for her. No one showed up. They would photograph these things to make it look like a lot of people were there. No one was there. Same thing with Joe Biden. They want you to believe he got 80-some-odd million votes. One of his first public appearances, three people showed up. There were more people from the press than there was for Joe Biden. Nobody cares about Joe Biden. All manufactured. Donald Trump won that election because he outworked everyone. And once he got in and saw what a filthy swamp Washington actually was, he set about trying to dismantle it, and that's when they set about trying to dismantle him. And make no mistake about it, the only person out there fighting for you right now is Donald Trump. You know, I listen to other people's broadcasts I like to get other people's perspectives. There's nobody really left on the radio on a national scale that even comes close to Rush Limbaugh. These two clowns that that replaced Rush Limbaugh's time slot here in New York on 710 WOR from uh, noon to 3, 
worthless. I thought they were going to be good. <clears throat> Nothing but anti-Trumpers, rhinos, worthless. <clears throat> Their time is limited. Uh, Joe Piscopo does a great show here in the New York area, but he's not national. I wish he were. <clears throat> the only guy that really has the analytical skills of Rush Limbaugh is Mark Levin on his podcast. And he points out, forget the rest of the field. The only two people who are presidential timber in that entire Republican field are Trump and DeSantis. And I still say DeSantis is a good man, but I don't think he can hold up to the pressure like Trump can. And I think once they get him in Washington, they'll go after him as well. The only reason why he's not taking the full brunt of the Democratic assault is everyone in the Democratic side, despite what they tell you, knows that Donald Trump is the man to beat. That's why they're doing everything they can to keep him from getting back in. Because once he gets back in, there's going to be everyone laid waste. And unlike what Comey says, it's not going to be an administration of retribution. It's going to be administration of justice for people like him who violated the law and weaponized government against a legitimate presidential candidate, and then weaponized government against a sitting president to try and take him out and take him down. That's a coup. And that's what was perpetrated against Donald Trump, an attempted coup. And they ultimately succeeded. Because if you believe that that 2020 election was legitimate, you really have an altered sense of perspective. And now they've gone so far as to come up with criminal charges Criminal charges that even if they were legitimate, should be federal, somehow make their way into a state court in one of the most liberal cities in this country, New York, in liberal Manhattan, with a Soros-funded DA, Alvin Bragg. And then we have a hand-picked zealot by the name of Jack Smith, special prosecutor, looking to indict the president over documents under the Espionage Act, which is not even applicable to a sitting president or a former president. Only the Presidential Records Act applies. And Donald Trump hasn't done anything any different than any one of a number of his predecessors have done. Lyndon B. Johnson, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and even some people who are not his predecessors, people who do not enjoy the protection of the Presidential Records Act because they were never presidents, like then-Senator Joe Biden, and then Vice President Joe Biden, and then Vice President Mike Pence. It's sickening, but it's the world we live in. But we're not going to let them get away with it. We're going to keep fighting, and Donald Trump isn't backing down, and neither should you. We're going to see this thing through to the end, however it shakes out. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>